0: Welcome to BIV Today. We are the Daily Business News Podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton.
1: And I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, we'll look at how issues around pipelines could cost Canadian energy producers $15.8 billion this year.
0: And we're also going to speak to SFU finance professor Andre Pavlov about his research on BC's proposed school tax.
1: But first, we're going to start with a look at some of the business news headlines making waves today, Wednesday, May. starting with the fact that the value of Metro Vancouver building permits shot up 114% in March this year compared to last year. Now, it is important to note that in March 2017, the value of permits issued fell 39%, but the figures we're seeing out from Stats Canada today do show that March of this year has more than made up for that decrease about $1.2 billion in permits were issued, which led the province, which in turn helped push national figures up 3.1% month to month.
0: I think what we would be looking forward to in the near future then, based on these numbers, is more of a labor crunch going on on the West Coast here, which we're already facing right now. So it just makes me wonder what the industry is going to do about this.
1: Yeah, no, that's a very good question. A lot of cranes in the air these days. It's hard to imagine that We could see that double. WestJet is apologizing for asking frequent flyers to record on video and through photos its flight attendants and those with competitors. According to CBC, the air carrier asked a few regular passengers to record their in-flight experiences across not just WestJet, but as I said, all carriers. The Canadian Union of Public Employees called the ask a basic violation of privacy. WestJet apologized and explained the use was intended for research purposes, calling the insight that would have been gathered very valuable. But of course, yeah, if you walked into any competitor's business and started taking photos, that would be valuable, but it's it's not allowed.
0: It's kind of creepy, but you know, can't they just hire their own people to just sit in on the competitor's flights and record for, not necessarily record with video, but just take notes or make observations or something? This just sounds a little creepy, doesn't it?
1: What about a survey? A post-flight survey, you can capture everyone's responses. It's the video that sounds a little little creepy.
0: You say capture everyone's responses. If I get this post-flight survey, I am not (laughs) filling it out. I I have no time for these things.
1: Would you if you're offered a voucher for a free flight or something Uh, like that? For a free
0: flight? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) I don't think they're going to be offering uh, that kind of incentive, but I would jump on it in a second.
1: Maybe there's a go-between. Who knows? Anyway, for now, WestJet will not be asking to do that. Anymore. And in the Walmart versus Amazon War for grocery retail and e-commerce dominance today, it was Walmart's move. The company is buying a multi-billion dollar majority stake in Flipkart, which is an Indian e-commerce company. It's a giant and a private company currently. The deal is 16 billion US for 77 percent of the company and it's expected to close later this year walmart looking to india of course because there's great growth expectations that you can't necessarily get in say the u.s or canadian market
0: yeah fair enough i mean maybe we have kind of hit a certain ceiling but you look at developing economies and you definitely see some potential there
1: you do for more business news head over to biv.com and in a moment we'll get to our first interview which is on the connection between pipelines and the price of canadian oil Insufficient pipeline infrastructure can actually keep the price of Canadian oil at a discount compared to U.S. oil prices, which, incidentally, we've seen rally quite a bit this week. New research from the Fraser Institute says that the challenge of physically getting Canadian crude to market could cost Canadian energy producers $15.8 billion this year. Ken Green joins the show today to walk us through the findings. Ken is the Senior Director of Natural Resource Studies at the Fraser Institute, joining us today on the line from Calgary. Ken, welcome back to the show.
2: Thank you. Good to be with you.
1: Walk us through how exactly a lack of pipeline infrastructure can impact the price of
2: Canadian crude. Sure. Um, the, the biggest issue is that we have really one customer for Canadian oil and gas, and that's the United States. Uh, and we have one a transportation network that drains into the United States, into the, the Midwest mostly, and then m- m- makes it, some of it makes its way over to the Texas Gulf. But we're, we're selling our oil into a glutted market. And there are there are several different reasons why we can't command the same price as light sweet crude from West Texas intermediary, for example. Um, and part of that is long transportation distances and the cost it takes to transport. Part of it is the fact that we have heavy oil uh, with some sulfur content that needs greater refining. But part of it is simply that we're selling into a, a single uh, customer that has a glut and is increasing its own production all the time. And so we, we face a discount for our oil of more than uh, $16 a barrel uh, compared to what we would get if we were selling, for example, uh, into the European market or into the Asian market. Uh, we would get more money for our, a barrel of our oil than we are getting now because of, the, because of that monopoly situation. Hmm.
1: So it's not just pipelines then. It's pipelines to market in new markets outside of the U.S. That's part of the issue.
2: Yes, absolutely. That's part of the issue, which is um, we can send more oil to the U.S. and we will when Keystone XL finishes uh, being built. Um, And there are are refineries ready to take it on the East Coast of the United States. Um, But um, uh, the the, the challenge we face is diversifying our markets. Uh, You know, we have a lot of politicians are saying how we have to diversify our economy. And yet they don't seem to apply that to diversifying our energy economy by getting new customers in other markets. And that means getting access to Asia and Europe. And and, um, that means getting coastal access for exports for our product. I
0: I want to talk about those diverse markets in just a moment, but let's stick around with our our main customer here the United States. Let's look at, say, the Keystone XL pipeline. And if we do increase capacity, are we not just sending this oil to a market that you said already has a glut right now? What would, you know the construction of that infrastructure really do to alleviate some of the issues that we're talking about here.
2: Well, the overall market has a glut, but there are regional differences, right? So there are refineries that, that need to use heavy oil to make the products they use, um, and some of those are in um, on the Texas Gulf Coast and and are eager to get our our um, oil. Uh, so and and for, for for other uses, not just for not so for export but even for, for refining and then sell, selling back into Canada, for example, or on the East, on the East Coast, instead of uh, needing imports from places like Venezuela and, and OPEC. Um, so there are markets there, they're regional markets, um, but, but the big picture is that in Oklahoma and the Midwest, which is where we, we mostly export to, uh, there is quite a, there is a, a oil glut uh, and um, therefore we're getting less than we could command. So then what
0: kind of potential, and I think we can get into maybe some of the politics of it all with regards to, say, the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but what kind of potential if this pipeline is expanded here from northern Alberta over to the west coast here, what kind of potential are we looking at with regards to the Asian
2: markets? Well, as we said, the discount this year is going to be $16 billion. So that's the window within which we operate. We have to operate. So if we could reduce that by 50%, for example and get get a higher price for our oil, we, we could cut that down to um, $8 billion in foregone revenue or even or less than that. So it really would depend on the, the um, efficiency of, of moving to those markets. And that remains to be seen as well, whether we're going to be able to do that at all.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned the difference. It's going to be nearly sixteen billion dollars this year. And in the report, you look at sort of how this discount has expanded over the last decade, going from just over five dollars to now twenty-eight, twenty-nine. What sort of impact does that have on Canadian energy producers, the fact that they could be missing out on billions more than what they would otherwise
2: command? Well, what it does is, and we've seen this happen- this playing out, what it does is it reduces the attractiveness of Canada uh, as a place for investment and expansion of energy production activities. If you can make uh, $25 more per barrel uh, by operating in Oklahoma or Texas than you can in Alberta, um, or British Columbia for that matter, um, you're likely to do that. And we're seeing investment flee uh, from from Canada in the energy sector because we, we have policies in place to, that are... Hindering energy development at the same time as we're having a discount, and and, and until recently, at the same time that there was a global um, drop in, in uh, oil and gas prices, so uh, it was a perfect storm, and we're seeing reduced uh, investment or interest in it as investments in Canada as a result.
0: Well, let's say, you know, we want to tackle that particular market where there's a lot uh, here just off the coast of uh, BC, ship it across the ocean. Um, There's a lot of political issues that are in the way right now. It's very polarized right now. So how do we, you know, physically get this done? How do we go forward at this point? Is it going to be a lot more collaboration between, I guess, Ottawa, Edmonton and Victoria moving forward?
2: Well, that's a a question sort of above my pay grade, (laughs) We're not really a, a, too much about politics at Division vision Institute. We're really about uh, kind of measuring measuring things and educating the public as to what the impact of various choices are. But um, I would say that uh, um, certainly some kind of uh, cooperation between the federal government and, and British Columbia uh, is going to be necessary or some sort of agreement is going to be necessary to move things forward. Um, but uh, ultimately, I think, if, even if it doesn't move forward, if uh, the transatlantic expansion doesn't move forward, eventually just the sheer reality of, of the monetary losses and loss of competitiveness are going to change Canadians' minds about whether or not they can accept, they will accept infrastructure projects like this um, that, that uh, are deemed necessary by the federal government. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think one way or the other we'll see change, but. I don't really um, bank on any one particular politician making a significant change in the near term.
0: Well, uh, the other question mark that I think a lot of people have right now is if we look at the viability of, say, the Chinese market in the long term—not necessarily the medium term—but China is trying to get off of, you know, pollutants. They are trying to go cleaner. We have an opening up of the market with, say, you know, natural gas, for example. How mm-hmm. long do you actually see market viability going on uh, with regards to just a country like China, for example?
2: Well, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, um, as, and no, nobody does that I know of. But I it, if you had that in oil
0: it would be pretty uh, fantastic be sure you sure can make millions uh, <laughs> with regards to that oh, yeah. but, uh, sorry
2: absolutely but but the history of oil forecasting is a perfect one of failure um, nobody has ever been yeah. to forecast well but um, the International Energy Agency and other other groups that do long-term forecasting of energy consumption um, all find uniformly that that the idea that we're getting away from fossil fuels anytime before 2040, 2050, in any meaningful way is is false. Uh, the, the latent demand for transportation, for chemicals, for uh, consumer products uh, in the Asian market, there are 2 billion people without access to modern forms of energy um, or, or significant access to, to, to motorized transportation. Um, that, that's real, and it will stay real. And therefore, the long-term uh, demand for oil and gas, I think, is predictable and reasonably strong. Um, the question is who's going to meet it uh, and will, will that be Canada, which has had a history of increasing its oil and energy production while bringing down air pollution, um, as, as for that matter has California, um, or will it be other countries around the world like uh, Venezuela and OPEC and places where they're less conscientious about their environmental protections and their social protections for that matter. Uh, that's what remains
3: to be seen.
1: Mm-hmm. You're joining us, of course, from Calgary. We're here in Vancouver, and we touched on this a, a little bit. Both provinces have very different views on pipelines. But I, I, I want to put this to you. It could be easy for critics in Vancouver to say, okay, well, energy producers that are multi-billion dollar entities, often multinational companies, missing out on a few billion in revenue, why should I care? And I'll put that question to you. Why should Canadians and British Columbians outside of the direct energy industry, care about some of the findings in this report and care about how we get product to market and how it's priced?
2: That's a, a good question. I'm sorry that the apparently the police are coming for me. Uh, so if you're, <laughs> sirens, if you're hearing sirens, sirens that may be one. But um, uh, no, it's a very good question. And and the answer to that question is it's not just about Alberta and it's not just about the oil and gas companies. It's about the people they employ. It's about the service sectors that, that, that service them with with everything from uh, metal fittings and, and parts to labor. It's about uh, the governments that get take a share of those, those, that income and use it on healthcare and education and infrastructure. It's about pension funds that, um, that are, are elderly, depend upon uh, revenues from to uh, enjoy a retirement or their, their elder years. So it, it's really a, it's, a, it's a ripple effect across the economy. Uh, and, you know, there's a saying, right, There's a, a death of a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. One cut may be small, but we have numerous cuts going uh, in in the, this particular sector and, and other natural resource sectors. And we are a natural resource economy to a certain extent, a significant extent, both historically and now uh, and probably pros- prospectively into the future. So uh, this is not just a it's not just a single sector or just, a, you know, the the vilified fat cats who are going to take a haircut. It's really all of our society.
1: Well put. Ken, as always, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, it's always a pleasure. Sorry, that, about, sorry about the police coming to get me.
1: Hey, it would have made good radio, but we're glad that you're safe <laughs> and sound and not on your way to jail. Yes, <laughs>
2: yes I, am, I am both of those
1: <laughs> That's Ken Green, Senior Director of Natural Resource Studies over at the Fraser Institute.
0: Stay with us a moment. We're going to be taking a look at the potential implications of B.C.'s proposed school tax. That's coming up next.
1: All properties in B.C., with a few exceptions, pay a school tax already. But starting in 2019, an additional tax will be applied to the province's high-valued residential properties properties. The idea was unveiled in the BC NDP's first full budget earlier this year. The rates are 0.2% on the residential portion of a property assessed between 3 and $4 million. It goes up to 0.4% on those assessed over $4 million. And our next guest has some concerns with this taxation scheme. Andre Pavlov is a professor of finance at SFU's B.D. School of Business. He joins us now. Glad to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us.
3: Hello, thank you.
1: So, you've done some research on this. I first want to ask you what prompted you to maybe look a bit closer at these changes in taxation?
3: That's a very good question. Um, it's, um, uh, I think the main reason that, um, that I uh, got interested in this tax is the way it has been portrayed as, as very small and applying only to the very rich. Uh, and, and and sort of like, um, you know, um, it, I really it was uh, designed to be framed as something very insignificant and it is not. I think the tax is very significant. Um, even the numbers that you just quoted appear small and uh, sort of like, oh, who cares, you know, uh, those uh, rich homeowners can surely afford um, to pay more taxes. But um, the fact of the matter is, since the tax is paid every year, it adds up very quickly. So, uh, you know, obviously, uh, specific calculations depend on the assumptions, but, uh, you know, typical cases um, get you um, the school tax pretty much equivalent to 20% uh, capital gain tax or more, Uh, and this is a very significant number. I think if uh, the current government said, oh, we're going to impose 20% capital gain tax on residential real estate, that would lead to a revolution, but when it's sort of framed as as um, as an annual uh, charge that costs uh, hits you every year so it's substantial it's the same amount but uh, but it, the number itself is smaller um, somehow uh, the the message that this tax is very substantial gets missed
0: well and- I wonder if we can frame it in a way that people can relate to. In like Somebody who has been living in, say, Point Grey for 30 years, maybe they are a retiree now, they're going to be subject to this at this point. They may not have the income in order to cover this. Do you think that this could be a potential problem? Do you think the government's going to have to look at some sort of rethink of this or even exemptions going forward?
3: That's a separate problem, but yes, that it's that's uh, very much the case. Um, the school tax taxes you on unrealized um, gains or uh, if even, even if you don't have gains actually you're still underpaying the tax uh, and the point is you have to pay the tax before you have the money to pay it. Uh, so with capital gain taxes or even with income taxes, you pay the tax when you're earning that income or when you're selling an asset and presumably you have the money to pay it. With the school tax, this is a tax on assessed value, there is actually no real money changing hands. So uh, as a homeowner, you're not receiving any money. You still have to pay the tax. Now, um, what the government has done is um, provide uh, allow for uh, retirees and and um, uh, families with children, and uh, you know I think those are the two categories. Uh, so if allowed, um, the government has allowed those people to defer their tax. Uh, so in other words, they pay it when they sell the asset. Well. That sounds good on paper, but this is really like forcing people into a reverse mortgage, um, except it's worse because they are not uh, the, the, the homeowner is not the one receiving the mortgage, it's the government receiving the funds, but the homeowner has to pay the mortgage. So um, forcing people into that like that is um, uh, it's a, a very substantial issue
1: what do you think the overall impact will be either on the market on individuals how homes are sold? What do you think this school tax that's a little bit higher how might that impact metro vancouver real estate
3: well it, it certainly is going to have an impact in um uh, immediate ways when it's some homeowners going have to be um, are going to be called as far to sell. Because they need to uh, pay this now higher tax. And as you said, if it's uh, someone who's been living in a house for a long time, they may not necessarily have the cash flow to cover those payments. Um, so, uh, and then the question is okay, well, you can sell. That's another story out there. You can sell, but then, so then you downsize and you make you all these huge capital gains, and you should really be happy about that. Well, yes, but the question is, who are you going to sell to? Because anyone else who tries to get into the market now, uh, and the high end of the market is going to have harder time doing so, because they will be they will be subject to this tax and a number of other taxes. And anyone even um, trying to get into the uh, into the middle of uh, range of the market, you know, two to three million dollar homes, will also struggle because you know through inflation. Um, and property prices are going to go up over time and about uh, the tax uh, the, the tax exemptions are uh, not indexed to inflation so sooner or later many more properties are going to be subject to the tax uh, so then uh, people might think twice before they buy um, even a cheaper home today.
0: So what do you think would maybe be a better alternative to the issue that the government is trying to address here, which is obviously raising more money for the school tax, but target, targeting the quote-unquote wealthy, if this could have these unintended consequences?
3: So first of all, it's, uh, the money is not going to the to schools, it's going to general revenue. Uh, so I think the school tax, the way it was labeled, is, uh, is purely for um, public relations reasons. It has nothing to do with schools. Uh, and um, then the next question is, okay, well, if we do need to raise that revenue, how are we going to do that? First of all, I'm not um, convinced that we need to raise that revenue. I mean, clearly, um, the NDP government, since they came into power, has raised pretty much every tax imaginable. Um, you know, they've raised income taxes, payroll taxes, uh, you know, all kinds of. Um, uh, and, and property transfer taxes, you know, uh, everything really has gone up. And then the question is, um, why is it that, uh, that um, they need to, to raise so much more money from uh, the taxpayers? But that aside, uh, even if we assume that is a legitimate uh, approach to governing, um, then I would say uh, we have a real problem with supply in Vancouver. And the way to, um, to solve that problem is to increase supply. And I'm not talking about 50,000 or 100,000 units. I really wanna see uh, double the city, the size of the city in terms of housing units over the next 10 or 15 years. And if we do that, the nice side benefit is that it's gonna generate a whole lot of economic activity which is gonna generate additional taxes. So in that case, uh, I think the NDP government will be able to actually keep uh, some or most of uh, the election promises it has made without actually raising taxes.
1: Hmm, interesting. I, I want to pick up on one thing you said. If it's not directly about raising funds for schools, it's going to general revenue. At its core, what do you think this is really about? What is it an effort to do?
3: I really don't understand why, uh, uh, why uh, this tax was introduced. Uh, I, it's gonna raise, in the first year, it's gonna raise $50 million projected. And then after that, I think it goes up to about 200 million. This is according to government estimates. Uh, this is on a 50 billion plus uh, budget uh, for the basic government. Right. So this is absolutely insignificant uh, in terms of the revenue it generates. Um, So, I mean, I want to say um, I really don't understand why this tax was necessary. It doesn't help the revenue. I really think what's going on is this is a trial balloon to see how people would react uh, to increases on uh, taxes on capital in general, not just real estate and not just high-end real estate. Uh, I think the NDP may very well have plans to uh, impose wealth tax or capital tax um, across the board and uh, this is sort of um, uh, a low-risk way for them to see how the public would react.
0: Well, uh, Generally speaking, the public isn't all that fond of taxes. So I, I wonder if this trial balloon, it can go under the radar. But if you are going to be you know, upping taxes on, on capital, that's going to get kind of an expected response from citizens, no?
3: Well, I mean, I understand the last NDP government imposed tax on capital uh, for uh, companies in BC. Uh, and um, I haven't looked at the data myself, but I also understand this was a disaster. As in, uh, capital formation in BC went from low to extremely low. Uh, so it seems to me they already know how the uh, how people would react, uh, and 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 I think they understand that uh, taxes on capital, real estate, or manufacturing is uh, is a bad idea. But. Um, Perhaps I believe uh, times have changed, and now uh, people apparently are a lot more willing to uh, pay higher taxes. I think what's really going on is the election promises the NDP made were not really um, uh, made in full disclosure in terms of what tax increases uh, would be required to, to meet those election promises. I think if that was done uh, 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 properly with full disclosure, um, I don't know if so many voters would have uh, been attracted to those, uh, um, you know, spending promises.
1: Do you think that that means, in the months and potentially years ahead, we're looking at additional taxes to raise enough revenue?
3: Yes, absolutely. Because um, there is, I mean, it's well-established fact that tax increases do not actually uh, raise very much revenue uh, in the long run. So, sure, the school tax and all these other taxes, the payroll tax, is going to have a temporary increase in revenue, but over time, people will just uh, – businesses are going to scale back their uh, operations in B.C., and, and uh, developers are going to scale back their projects. Uh, so, um, this economy-killing taxes would slow down the economy, and then, um, um, and then the tax revenue at the end of the day is not going to increase all that much. Now, what's uh, happening internationally is that the global economy, for the first time in a decade or more, is actually growing uh, across the world, and, of course, that helps. So this is sort of similar to what was happening in the late 90s when, uh, with, the, with the tech bubble, um, and all economies were growing uh, and everything was wonderful, BC was lagging substantially but nonetheless, it was sort of staying afloat, be dragged up by uh, the rest of the world. So similar things are happening right now. But those uh, global economic expansions don't last forever, as we discovered, uh, you know, in 2008. And if uh, something does happen to that global economic expansion, BC is going to be in a very uh, tight spot.
1: Hmm. Andre, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Really appreciate you coming on.
3: Absolutely. Best of luck.
1: That's Andre Pavlov, a professor of finance at SFU's BD School of Business. And you've been listening to BIV today. Thanks for joining us We're the Daily Business Podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper.
0: And you should subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also find our past episodes and go to BIV.com for all of our stories. But for now, thanks for joining us.